Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Uh, that's right. That is the uh, title of our message today. Genesis chapter 4. Two worldviews contrasted. And as we see Genesis 4, uh, some of you might remember that we were in Genesis 2 last week. And um, you would be correct. We were in Genesis chapter 2. In fact, um, went back and I it was a difficult decision um, as, a, as a shepherd. You were very loving and gracious to me. I know that that message last week was an hour and 25 minutes. And uh, that is probably the longest message I've ever preached in my life, much less at Crossroad. Uh, but that particular message was a, a heavy content message that set the stage for the biblical topic of Sabbath and rest for all of Scripture. And all of Scripture anchors itself to that section, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. And that particular time frame is also the first mention of the word holy or elevate. God elevated the seventh day. And so there was something about that that we learned last time, not to re-preach that, but we know that that particular time of rest is an eternal rest that is prepared for God's people. And when God finished his Sabbath rest, it is now available to all who receive Jesus by faith. The idea of Sabbath rest is not, a, is not an idea that we as believers can script and can then borrow or su suggest or say that the Sabbath now is replaced. Saturday is now replaced with Sunday. Um, as I mentioned last time, the Sabbath is for God's people. It is an eternal rest. God ceased from his work in Genesis chapter 1, and then he had to work again in Genesis chapter 3 because sin entered into the world and thus death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And God's first work after the fall was a work of symbolic redemption. He would kill an innocent animal in the place of guilty humans. Blood would have to be shed to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, and clothes would have to be made to cover their nakedness. And in a symbolic way, God would show that eternal rest only comes from following his way, his truth, and his life. And so the Sabbath is not uh, for the believer today in the same way um, that it was in the Mosaic law time, because the Mosaic law time was a time for Israel to uh, exemplify the principle of earthly rest. But God was preaching and teaching in the original onset a principle of eternal rest that would be available to all who by faith would trust in him. With that being said, Pastor Stephen masterfully preached over the course of two weeks a couple of messages on Genesis chapter three and uh, 2 and 3. And Genesis chapter 2 and 3 set the theological foundation, not just for God creating man and mankind in his image, both male and female as co-equals together, joint heirs of the grace of life, for the purpose of together having uh, dominion over the earth and being fruitful and multiplying. But then when sin entered into the world, there the image of Christ, the, the uh, Imagio Deo, was destroyed or marred, twisted uh, by the destruction of sin. And so we have this theological principle that sin, when it is crouching at the door, would want seek to devour us. That is introduced to us in chapter four. So God, in his infinite mercy at the fall of mankind, would provide a means of restoration. The thing that he would warn Adam and Eve against in Genesis chapter two, that if you sin in the day that you sin, you will die. Emphatically in Hebrew, dying you will die. Translated in the AV, surely you will die. But ultimately, it is an emphatic emphasis that death will come to all who sin against Almighty God. So God would provide, though, a means of redemption in the proto-evangelion, the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, that God would send forth a seed of the woman to crush, deal the death blow to the serpent who embodied sin and Satan. And that death blow would be accomplished through a human being, a descendant of Eve and Adam. 
Adam would then pronounce in Genesis 3.20 a name for his wife, and he would symbolically say she is the mother of all living. And he he would see hope in the command that God would provide life through death, that God would provide life despite sin and failure. And so last time we were together, as we saw the Sabbath rest that was short-lived after the fall, God would uh, come to culminate and finish his redemptive work. Uh, But because of sin, redemption would be an individual process that would be thus available for every human being one life at a time. Yet like God's original Sabbath rest, redemption would, would be finished once and for all and available to all who would receive it by faith. This is the essence of the Sabbath that we saw there in the beginning. So God's finished Sabbath rest is available to all who receive Jesus by faith was our topic last time. But today, we're going to pick up the narrative of the Genesis story as we close out the first Toledoth. Now, that is a word that you haven't heard for a long time. That is the Hebrew word that it it divides the sections of, of the book of Genesis. It is mentioned 11 times, twice in the first four chapters of Genesis to sort of circle creation, and then a recreation. And that's what we're going to see here. And I'm going to give you some facts about the first two Toledoths in a minute that are narrative facts. They're facts about the story, because if you remember the sermon from months ago in January, those Toledoth present to us uh, structural truths about God's plan and numerical truths about God's plan that highlight the beauty of his creative power and creative story and highlight his sovereignty over all that he has made. And so this section actually at the end of chapter four ends the first series, the first couplet of Toledoths. So we're going to launch into a new series of beginnings in Genesis chapter five. The first series of beginnings ends here at the end of chapter four. Now, uh, this section ends, though, it begins uh, in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, with the genealogy of Adam's first two sons. Then there's another genealogy that is mentioned in chapter 4, verses 17 to 22. So the genealogy that's mentioned in 4, 1 and 2 is interrupted and and re-entered again in 17 to 22, but it's interrupted by this atrocious story of Cain and Abel's awful interaction and Cain's ultimate decision. So that is bookended on purpose by the narrator to showcase or highlight something wrong between these two divergent worldviews. And as we see at the end of uh, of this story in verses 23 and 24, uh, the end of Cain's genealogy is highlighted by one of his ancestors fifth, five generators, gen, generations later that in the same fashion sins as his forefather. And what we discover in these two worldviews that are contrasted in this narrative for us today is the truth that there are two divergent paths. From the fall and the exit out of the garden, there are two divergent paths that, that follow for all mankind. We have the way of God or the way of Cain. And those two divergent paths are highlighted in this text today. And as as best we can, we're going to simplify the truths that are highlighted in this chapter, not just to draw your attention to the actual story of real people named Cain and Abel or real people named Cain and Seth or Cain and Lamech and Seth, But we're going to highlight the truths, the theological principles that now go from the beginning to the end of all creation, from creation to consummation. What is the truth of these two divergent paths and the fruit of the decision that you and I will make in our lives where we decide which path will I follow? And that is the question that we must ask ourselves today. In fact, We're going to ask the question, what does the text reveal about these two worldviews or two paths to human history as they diverge? What does the text reveal? Boy, that sentence doesn't grammatically make sense. So ignore the sentence. But here's what essentially I'm trying to say. What does the text reveal to us about worldviews or two paths into human history as they diverge? That's what it should say. And the question that we're going to answer today will have this kernelized truth in two points. 
we're going to see that the text is going to show us that life outside of God's perfect garden before the fall, thus after the fall, they were, the Adam and Eve were expelled out of God's perfect garden. Remember, it was a perfect place of perfect unity, of perfect fellowship with a perfect environment, with a perfect teacher who is the father of all, who created all, with a perfect place of pleasure. Uh, all of the things, all of the trees were good to look upon and good for food. And yet, when they broke God's law, they were expelled from the garden. And so life outside of the garden then coalesces in two worldviews that are still evident today. And these two worldviews, ironically, are evident in the life of two brothers that were introduced to. And then a third brother who essentially is birthed in place of his fore, fore, forefather or his older brother. So we're going to look at the story that tells us of the first fruits or the fruits of God's way of worship. And then finally, we're going to look at what the story tells us of the fruits of Cain's way of worship. You see, Pastor, where do you get the idea of worship? Well, that's a wonderful question. I'm going to read the text here in just a moment, but the reason why I've given you all this introductory truth is I want to give you the skeletal structure as we're reading the text for you to frame what we're saying by the text as you're looking at it, okay? So first and foremost, as we look at chapter four, notice the first aspect or the first, the way that the story starts out with worship. And then I'm going to show you how it ends in worship. So notice in verse one, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. That is a, a beautiful King James, a new King James-ism for saying they were intimate together and they conceived and they bore a son. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the first fruit of his flock and their fat. So what we find here <coughs> is the introduction to two ways of worship. First of all, it's an introduction of worship and then two ways of worship. Now look at the very end of the story, uh, verse 26, or excuse me, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also was a son born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord again. And so what we have here is the story bookended with worship and worship. So there's two ways of worship that are discussed. And then there's fruit of the choice of these ways of worship that are, that are showcased in this text. Genealogies bookend and interrupt the story. And those genealogies are meant to highlight or draw our attention to the narrative and then reset our focus. So they're not interruptive. They're instructive as we look at them. And so as we pick up the narrative story in Genesis, we close out the first Toledoth section that ends at 426. We're going to find, as, as I mentioned, chapter four, uh, introducing gene genealogy of Adam's first two sons being interrupted with this uh, discussion that showcases life outside of the perfect garden with a hideous crime of murder in verses 3 to 16. Then we're going to see this other genealogy of Cain, which ends by highlighting Cain's ancestor, uh, which brings sin in the same fashion as his forefather. And finally, the chapter ends as it begins with a note about worship. So clearly, chapter 4 must be heard in partnership with chapter 3. We noted that there, uh, there that the theological importance of this structure and lexical association has a cause and effect. Chapter four's events are seen as genetically related to the fall of Adam and Eve, and the actions of a parent and her child are viewed as an organic whole. So what Adam and Eve did would have consequences on the descendants of Adam and Eve. Do we see that? Just like God promised to send a descendant that would also accomplish his purpose, they would have to trust by faith that that descendant would come and thus accomplish God's purpose. And we see actually 
Eve acting on faith, where Eve and Adam acting on faith, where Cain is acting on something else. And we'll see that here in a moment. So this attributes the, the lamentable advances of sin in the Cain-Abel episode to the inception of sin that happened inside the garden. Now Cain, Adam's firstborn, acts out the serpent's purposes by murdering the seed of the woman Eve. Listen to me, friends. Satan, from the very beginning, from the, the moment of his fall, whenever that was, sometime during the creation week, no doubt, or maybe shortly after the creation week, uh, probably shortly after the creation week, or God wouldn't have said, this is very good. But we find we don't know theologically when Satan's fall was, but we know from Isaiah 14 that Satan's fall was attributed to his desire to set himself up as God, to be like the Most High, to sit on the Most High's throne. Satan wants all of God's worship. And so from the beginning, Satan was going to do whatever it took to destroy God's perfect creation. And he started by attacking God's chief creation, Adam and Eve. Where he succeeded, God would step in to redeem and offer a promised substitute that would sacrifice himself in their place. But what does Satan do here at the very first mention of a seed of the woman? He convinces one of those children, one of those sons of Adam and Eve, to kill that seed. So Satan, from the very beginning, is called a deceiver. He is a liar and the father of it. He is a murder, murderer, as Jesus described him, and has been from the beginning. Not only did he murder the relationship between God, Adam, and Eve, but he literally convinced uh, uh, Cain to murder Abel. So we find the fruit of the way of Cain began in the garden and has continued outside the garden. And one of the fruits of a worldview that is outside of God, that elevates itself to be like the Most High, is a fruit of self-destruction, self-aggrandizement, a fruit of murder and a malintention. And it doesn't, have, doesn't take us very long to look at human history. In fact, the point of the story of Genesis 4 clearly shows these two ways diverging. The way of, of, of Abel slash Seth is different in the way of worshiping God than the way of Cain slash Tubal Cain, who then uh, has this lament of the sword and showcases his desire to follow the self-aggrandizing path of his fifth-generation forefather, Cain. And so what we find then is, unlike uh, the parents, uh, Cain's parents, there's no sense of shame or remorse when Cain is confronted by God. If anything, he's incensed that God would censure him. His aggression against heaven's dictate is surpassed by the vitriolic voice of Lamech, who imitates his ancestor through murdering the vulnerable. Among all these bothersome noises, we never hear from poor Abel except the unnerving sound of the blood-drenched ground that cries out for satisfaction. The Bible tells us this, God tells us this, and it's repeated again in Hebrews chapter 11. So I want you to notice one other narrative fact about the text, and I'm done giving you all the fun facts. And, you know, some of you like those from Pastor Ryan, you know, I, I, you tell me how much you appreciate those. And some of you wish I would just leave them to your own personal study, but here you go. Here's a couple of other really interesting facts. As Moses has taken great care in constructing this story under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, the creation account has lots of sevens and multitude, multiples of seven. Remember, we've talked about this once before. Uh, I, I, I showcased it the last time from chapters one, one to two, three, but here they show up again. Within verses one to 17, the name Abel and the important designation brother together occur, you guessed it, seven times. Cain shows up 14 times. Whereas in chapter 1, 1 through 2, chapter 3, that's the first Toledoth section, the name God or Elohim occurs 35 times. That's 5 times 7. From chapter 2, 4 
to the end of chapter four, which is the second Toledoth section. Remember, they are a couplet. They go together from chapter one to chapter four. Guess how many times the name God or the name Lord God occurs? 35 times, 35 more times. And guess where the final or the 70th time is? The 70th time is in the last verse of this section. Uh, in that day, in the day of Seth, when he bore Enosh, then men became to call on the name of the Lord. Now, the number 70 uh, is 10 times 7, a number of fulfillment, perfection, and completion. How many times does uh, Lamech say that he will be an avenger? 70 times 7. And so we'll find that be, being picked up by Jesus in the New Testament. So it's a very fascinating section. I'm not a numerologist, but here, the way the structure of the text is laid out, it's to highlight important facts. The importance of the truth that God is mentioned 70 times in the first couplet of the Toledoth is to showcase God, the sovereign creator of the universe, gets to choose what is good and gets to define the world that he's created. And thus the worldview that is proper and right is the worldview of Abel who follows Adam and Eve's faith that the seed that God would send would one day fulfill God's promise and ultimately crush to death the serpent. And death would be demolished for good because of God's wonderful promise. The Sabbath rest that God instituted on the seventh day by elevating it would be fulfilled by the finished work of Jesus when on the cross he would say, it is finished, paid in full, so that all who could come to God by faith in Christ alone would have the eternal rest of the Sabbath that God promised. So the context of this story is not just a story that we share with people with moral truths. It is a story that clearly highlights two divergent worldviews. And can I say this, and I will say this often today, your choice of paths will produce the fruit of followers. That is the ultimate moral lesson from this story or this narrative today. Your choice my choice of paths, which view will I follow? Which path will I take? Which of the divergent worldviews that is now separated through the annals of time will I claim as my own? Will I walk the way of Cain? Self-aggrandizement, pride, a domination. Oh, rewarded by God and blessed in some way, shape, and forth and, and graced by God's love and mercy. Or will I walk the way of Abel slash Seth that brings true worship to the God who deserves my worship? Because either choice that I make will produce the fruit of followers. Did you understand that? You get that? What we see in the text are two divergent views that produce the fruit in my life of followers. People will follow the choices I make. People will follow the choices you make. People followed the choice that Abel slash Seth made. People followed the choice that Cain and Lamech made. And friends, your choice of paths will produce the fruit of followers. Today, the text shows us that life outside the garden brought these two divergent paths that coalesce into two worldviews that are clearly contrasted. Both worldviews culminate in the fruit of followers. So let's take a look at the first worldview we see in the text. And that first worldview is the fruit of God's way of worship. Now, I've already read the beginning and the ending of the story. So grab your Bible and look again at the narrative and let me finish the section, okay? I'm not going to pick up in verse 1 because I already brought you through verse, uh, verse 4 and I stopped there. So verse 5 is where I want to pick up with. So look at chapter 4 verse 5, and it says this, but he did not respect Cain. The he is a reference to God in verse 4. He, God, did not respect Cain and his offering. What is the result of this? Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and his desire is for you, but you should rule over it. 
Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Wah, wah, wah. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Let's just pause for a moment in the story just to say, do you see God's incredible grace and mercy here? Cain is angry. It absolutely changes his countenance. It's, he's viewably upset and he's angry at God. God doesn't let him go on as his anger. He immediately speaks to him and says, look, you can get victory over this anger. I've given you the way of escape. Cain chooses not to get victory, kills his brother, and then he's never, he's not only is he not remorseful, he's only sorry about the consequences of his sin. And God had every right to take his own blood for taking the blood of Abel, but instead he says, not only will I not take your life, but I'll put a mark on you to protect you from your life being taken by another. Talk about incredible mercy, but also incredible justice. Cain's life would be a, a long-lived life, hundreds of years, where he would be marked. He wouldn't be killed, but he would have to suffer and live under the consequence of God's curse. He'd have to think about the curse. Now let's go on to the story. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and he dwelt in the land of Nod, the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife. There's that beautiful euphemism again. They were intimate together. And she conceived and she bore Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad begot Mehujuel and Mehujuel begot Methushuel and Methushuel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the two, uh, the name of one was Ada. The name of the second was Zillah. Then Ada bore Jabel and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every, every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech. For I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So as mentioned above in this chapter, we find the fruit of two ways. God's way, the way of worship, versus Cain's way and his way of worship. So let's just talk about, uh, we're going to have to hop around the passage here because I'm going to summarize God's way of worship first, and then I'm going to summarize the negative side, Cain's way of worship second. So as mentioned above, the chapter begins and ends with this brief gene genealogy. It's a narrative fact that functions as a bookend for the content and thus highlights its importance. Eve believes Cain to be the seed of God's promise, but we find here that Cain's heart's affection show otherwise in other words the fruit of cain's heart affection showcase that he is not the promised seed that she was looking for not the droids you're looking for right yes you're welcome the account begins with a burst of exuberant optimism we find now adam knows his wife she conceives she brings forth cain and she says exuberantly i've gotten a man with the help of the lord Eve's pregnancy certainly must have been a source of joyous wonder to the couple. Perhaps like millions of her daughters to follow, uh, she would grab Adam's hand and 
place it on her tummy so that he could feel the life moving within her. Perhaps Adam would stoop down and, and listen to the throbbing heartbeat of this little one, this little life that was inside the womb and what the, the beauty and joy of knowing that God had given her a precious gift of a child within. The Hebrew word for man is ish. It's not used anywhere else in scripture to describe a baby boy, but the baby's gender was obviously that of, of Adam. So this was another ish. Eve says, in effect, God made man. And now with the help of the Lord, I have made a second man. Do you see how, how why God uh, uh, gave Adam the ability? And Adam in, in Genesis 3.20 says, my wife is the mother of all living because God breathed into Adam the breath of life. God created Eve out of Adam and thus Eve shared in the life that God gave Adam. And then Eve was able with Adam's help to bring life into the world again. And what a beautiful picture of God's promise. Be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth. But God had a path of worship for his people that they could either follow or not. And so she rightly saw Cain as a work of God. Her words were an implicit declaration of faith. Adam had believed the promise in Genesis 3.15 and so he'd named her Eve. Right. And a new mother praised God with a newly charged faith. Eve conceived again and he bore his brother Abel. Second part of verse two, his name signified a lack of permanence or a meaning and eluded uh, uh, or meaning and alluded unwittingly to his life being cut short. Ecclesiastes one, two and twelve eight employ the same word. So you can look up what the word Abel means. Uh, it means uh, it could be also pronounced Habel or Hebel. It means wind or breath. And so Abel was a short-lived life, but he was a life that was worship, a life typified by worship. Now, obviously, we don't know how long uh, there has been between this uh, birth of Abel, a Havel, and of Cain, but there was certainly enough life for them to become their own man, their own men, and to worship God in a way that is described here in the text. Abel's birth doubled her joy. Eve had become the mother of two sons. Three men filled the earthly horizons of the mother of all the living and hope welled high in the first family. Another narrative fact about the text is that the chapter begins and ends with the idea of worship, which sets the tone for our definition today, the, the fruits of God's way of worship versus the fruits of Cain's way of worship. Both Cain and Abel's sacrifices are an act of worship. Yet as we look at the sacrifice, only one is accepted. What is the key? Why is Abel's sacrifice accepted above Cain's? Now, some theologians would like to say that it's simply because one was a blood sacrifice and one was not. And that, while uh, on the surface, would really preach, right? I mean, Jesus died and shed his blood and broke his body on the cruel cross to cover for our sins. But there is a full body of Old Testament offerings that were also grain and fruit and agricultural offerings that were accepted to God as well. So it can't just be one was a blood sacrifice and one was a fruit or an offering of the ground sacrifice. There must be something more to it. And Hebrews 11 actually tells us that the key to Abel's sacrifice was one of faith. Well, the immediate text indicates that Cain's was not. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, Cain's was not an offering of faith because he presumed to define what his sacrifice would be. He was the captain of his own heart. God would, would have to take him and his offering as it was. Cain's error was what the latter prophets such as Micah would rail against. In Micah 6, 7, and 8, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? But Cain's singular sacrifice was unjust, unmerciful, and unhumble. The giveaway as to Cain's sinful attitude was his countenance, as we noted a minute ago. So Cain was angry and his face fell. Cain could have taken the divine disapproval of his offering as a gracious communication that it was. And he could have humbly asked God's forgiveness, promising never to fall again in such a sin. But he didn't do it. 
the blazing resentment toward God welled in Cain, which strangely, or should we say predictably, was directed at his brother Abel. Listen, the pattern of sin against God's way is clear. The pattern is clear, and it was set and established in the garden. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they immediately knew they had broken God's law. They immediately hid themselves. And when God called to them in the cool of the garden and gathered them back to himself to instruct and correct them, what is the very first thing that Adam does? It's the woman's fault. What does the woman say? It's the snake's fault. You see, instead of uh, admitting humility, humility, yes, I've broken your law, God. Yes, I I have done that which is atrocious. I have killed my brother. I have destroyed the image of God in my brother, and his blood is crying out from the ground. Oh, God, in your mercy, would you forgive me? No, instead, he gets rageful and angry. How dare you tell me what to do, God? I am the master of my own destiny. I am the captain of my own fate. I am the God, little G, of my own universe. And what I say is right is right for me. And how dare you tell me otherwise? Do you see the lie of the enemy that has subtly drifted into the worldview that we see today? Everybody has a truth. Your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. Would you just accept that my truth might be different from your truth and let me live my life the way I want to live my life? And by the way, if my lifestyle uh, infringes on your lifestyle, tough luck. That's where my tolerance ends. Because after all, my way, my choice is equally valid to your way and your choice. What a lie, my friends. God's way of worship in God's way of righteousness will always bring peace and satisfaction that is eternal. Cain's way of of righteousness and self-aggrandizement and pride will always bring a path of suffering and destruction. Can I say, friend, I am immensely saddened by the events that occurred last week. That a pastor and his family is mourning the loss of their nine-year-old daughter because one mentally ill young woman who saw and has been touted in the leftist press as a victim has committed an intolerable act of terrorism against Christians in the name of tolerance. She forced her way into a school with violence and in cold blood murdered the pastor's daughter and then killed another child and and two other or two other children and three adults who were sounding the alarm to call the police to defend the, the lives of these poor precious children what was she doing she was following the way of Cain and proclaiming that her way her lifestyle must be forcibly accepted by all of the people of this world. And if you don't like it, I'm willing to kill you for it. Friends, we live in in the world that is permeated by the way of Cain. It's too late for this young woman. It's too late for her. The voice of those children are crying out from eternity. And no doubt she is suffering right now the wrath of God that could have been abated in Jesus Christ and was freely available to her if she would have called on him in real mouth confession and heart belief. Because friends, Jesus' sacrifice paid in full the sin and the wrath of God for all sinners who call upon him, even for her, if she would have taken it. So her suffering and her choice is now an eternally sealed choice. I know the silence in this room brings the discomfort of the knowledge that we're all feeling. What do we do about those who feel like their lives are victimized by the right? By Christians. Well, we understand that they are deceived. And ultimately understand that God loves them too. They are made in God's image. 
no matter how they want to mutilate or mar it, no matter how they want to cover it up, or no matter how confused they are about it, God still loves them. How do you know that, Pastor? Because God made them in his image, and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. Pray, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. For truly the fields are white unto harvest. Friends, God died to save sinners, including those who are confused and deceived about their own identity. And we should be loving them to Christ and praying for their eternal salvation. But the fact remains, we can still clearly show that this decision that started all the way back in the garden and has shown very publicly evident in, the, in this choice of this one 28-year-old woman is the way of Cain. It's a way of self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, self-deification. My way is, is the one and only way, and it's truth for me. And God, how dare you tell me otherwise? And I'm going to force my way on others. Friends, that's not what we do, and that's not what God does. We offer God's way. We offer Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We share the hope and love of those, and we feel real sorrow for them. We should not be men and women that claim to be Christians who have hate and vehement speech toward those who are confused about their gender and their identity. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have hate for one another, right? If you have intolerance for those who disagree with you, if you vehemently curse them in public and politicize their problems, Right? That's what Jesus said, right? I hope you're saying emphatically that you see the irony in what I'm saying. No, Jesus said, if you love one another. Oh, friend, I don't know, I don't presume to know what this poor young woman did go through in her life. But I can tell you, her choice to follow the way of Cain was hers and hers alone. And she will stand before the just judge who will judge the living and the dead, and the books will be opened. And if her name is not found in the book of life, she will spend a Christless eternity separated from God in a real place called the lake of fire. And that is a terrible tragedy and a horrible trauma that all of us deserve. Do we see that? Because we all are sinners. We've all broken God's law. There's none righteous, not even one. All together we've become filthy. We were shaped in our mother's womb in iniquity. We were born in this world as transgressors. We are separated from God at birth, and we need God to redeem us. We need his mercy. And God offered his mercy to Cain. God offered his pardon and forgiveness, but Cain refused God's mercy and grace. You see, there are two divergent worldviews, the way of God and worship of God and the way of Cain and worship of self. And here we see the fruit of that played out, even in the story of the news this last week. Now, the, the murder and the mark that follows showcases both Cain's self-centeredness and his desire to rule his own destiny and God's faithfulness and mercy to, to allow Cain to feel his grace for a lifetime. While Cain would have, would have to live with the consequences of sin, no human would be able to enact vengeance upon him in his long lifetime. Though Cain did not recognize this as God's grace, the genealogical record of Cain shows God's mercy. Cain's accomplishments are highlighted in positive ways and are indeed formidable. Yet life without God as the center of worship only produces a society of bloodshed, violence, and domination, as we will see under point two in a minute. Rather than having dominion over the earth, Cain and his followers want dominion over his fellow humans. Do you see that? God never told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over mankind. Did he? He said, have dominion over the earth. 
And then what constitutes the earth? He further says, all the birds of the air, all that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea. You see, humankind was supposed to follow God's way of worship. God is the sovereign creator. Be taught by God who lovingly is our father. And we were supposed to be in partnership with all of man's descendants, all of the sons of Adam and Eve. We were supposed to dwell in God's perfect paradise on this perfect place of fellowship. And we were supposed to do that in unity and harmony. And yet sin causes nothing but violence, death, destruction, separation from God, and dominion over other man. That's the way of Cain. That's the way of the enemy. That's the way of destruction. So the way of worship, God gets to define worship. And we find in this context, Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. What is the reason? The reason is because of the heart. Cain's heart was a heart hardened against God who wanted his own way. He wanted the fruits of his own hands. He wanted his own righteousness to earn favor with God. And he wanted God to accept him for his way, not God's way. Abel was an offering of humility and faith. By faith, I trust that God has provided a substitute for me. And by faith, I'm trusting that God's way is sufficient to keep me in fellowship with him. The way of worship is to follow God's way, accept God's substitute, and by faith, believe in God's one and only sacrifice. You see the difference? You see the way of Abel, the way of worship, the way of God is still practiced by Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christ-following Christians today. We follow God's way by recognizing I am a sinner that cannot save myself. I cannot earn favor with God. There is no religion that can save me, only a relationship with the real God of the Bible who loved me and made me in his image. That is the only way I can be saved. And the only acceptance that I have on God is the acceptance of Christ's righteousness that is now robing me. I have a robe of righteousness that I don't deserve. And that came to me because Jesus sent Jesus was sent in obedience to the Father to suffer in my place. And when I call on him in mouth confession and heart belief, I am transferred from death to life, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And my transference from that death to life happens because Jesus obeyed the Father. There's nothing I've done. Nothing I can do to earn God's favor. It's all been done for me. God provided that promise to Abel, and Abel, by faith, trusted God. Cain, by self-aggrandizement and self-righteousness, refused God's way, and he re received the results. Let's take a look, finally, um, at the fruit. or Well, let's be reminded that the choice, my choice, your choice of paths will produce the fruit of followers. We find out uh, at the end of the story that Abel's short-lived Remember the, the word, the Hebrew word is Havel. It shows up in Ecclesiastes. Have you ever heard of the statement uh, in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities? Uh, um, it's, it's, it's the word, the, the idea of Havel. It's the idea of, of, of a vapor. Uh, life is a vapor. It appears for a little time. That's what Abel's name means, vapor, vanishing, short-lived. And Abel's short-lived life, though, did produce the fruit of followers. The fruit of the followers of God's true worship are told here at the end of the chapter. Seth was a follower of God following the fruit of his brother Avel. And Seth then produced children. And in the days of his children, Enosh, there were worshipers of God again. Because God's way is the way of worship. And God's way is the way of redemption. And it's freely offered to all who will believe. Seth, Avel. We're followers of God and his way of worship. So the fruit of your path or the choice of your path will produce the fruit of followers. Who are you following? And who are your followers following? And what is the fruit of your life? Now let's talk about the way of Cain now. As we see, the story tells us the fruit of Cain's way of worship. Cain's way of worship brings suffering and sorrow and distress. And we're going to see that here in a sec. So number two and finally. We find Cain's fierce anger at the rejection, rejection of his offering betrayed his self-righteous independence and smoldering disdain for God. His murder of his brother was in actuality a strike at God 
who had shown favor to Abel's offering instead of his. He killed his righteous brother, who of the two of them most represented the image of God. This Cain did without the slightest hint of remorse. His only emotion was self-pity. So when Cain went out from the Lord's presence to live in the land of Nod, which by the way, the land of Nod, the word means wandering, okay? East of Eden, his head was bloody, but unbowed. Though he bore the gracious mark of protection, he left Eden full of disdain and anger toward God. The taste of anger, bitter and sweet, mixed with blood, energized him. He would show God, he would show them all. His anger was electric and exhilarating, and molten energy shot through his veins. He was Captain Cain. One commentator wrote a poem that puts it well. It matters not how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That was Cain's mantra. So what happened to Cain after he left God and family in such angry defiance? Well, he prospered. One commentator, Alan Ross, puts it this way uh, about his pros uh, pros posterity. He took the, the lead in producing cities, music, weapon, agriculture, implements, in short, of civilization. Does God bless Cain? Yes. In fact, all of the things that we see and celebrate in civilization now are a result of Cain's descendants. They, they produce civilization that produced city and the luxuries of city living and the highlight of construction and agriculture and music and metallurgy and the high highs of high society all started with Cain and his descendants. Now, is there something wrong with high society and the highs of high society? No. Only the heart behind the highs of high society. The way of Cain would then prosper uh, post-Noah, and we'll find this all coming to a head at the in Genesis chapter 6, which I'm going to get to in a couple of weeks. And then we'll find this happen again in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, that God's way is rejected and Cain's way is followed. And when Cain's way is followed, suffering will always commence. The text revealing that God blessed Cain and his offspring despite his sin. His descendants produced cities and technology and music and art. Here's the story of Canaanite civilization. It saves us from overvaluing culture, doesn't it? The descendants of Cain through Lamech could manage their surroundings in order to prosper, but they could not manage their lives. Today, there are millions who indulge their families in abundance in the arts in all the boons of high-tech culture, and even as their lives spin more and more out of control. See, Solomon wrote it this way, there's nothing new under the sun. And all, all things under the sun are vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon committed himself to pursuing without withholding the, the, the life of luxury. He pursued every high art and every high culture. He built for him cities and, and uh, architecture and structures that were among the seven wonders of the ancient world. He uh, heaped unto himself 300 wives and 700 women that he could sleep with at any time. And he had a posterity and children of immense number. And yet it was all vanity and vexation of spirit, he would say, because nothing will fill the size of the God-sized void, God void in all of our hearts except God himself. And so Cain built, and all of his descendants built, a, built cities and high culture and music and, and uh, metallurgy, and all of this is meant to somehow build a, a monument to mankind and replace God the way of Cain and the way of self-worship and humanism still exist and pervade society today. And when we follow the fruits of the way of Cain, it will produce followers in our lives as well. Christians, hear me well. There's nothing wrong with high culture. There's nothing wrong with music and the arts. Some of you are incredibly gifted vocalists and instrumentalists. Some of you have engineering minds like I couldn't imagine. Some of you, God is gifted with talents. And some of the men that, that, uh, that are described in Cain's descendants, God says they had a spirit of wisdom. And God has gifted you with those things. But he hasn't gifted you them for your glory, but for his. And when you and I 
take the talents and the treasures that God has given us and we build a monument to ourselves, we are unwittingly following the way of Cain. And friends, if we're not careful, we will produce the fruit of followers in our lives. Our children, our grandchildren will follow the same path that we follow. May God help us to follow the way of Abel and Seth of true worshipers, that we would actually invest our time and our talent and our treasure for the King of kings and Lord of lords, that we would lay up for ourselves treasures that are in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Oh, friends, invest your life in the kingdom cause of Christ because that's what really matters. Invest your talents for his kingdom. Don't waste your life. Use it for God's glory, not your own. God will bless the way of Cain. But the blessing comes in a short-lived life of three score and ten. And after that, the judgment. But God's blessing on the way of Seth and Abel will always come with eternal fruit, not just for you, but for your progeny, for your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And when you and I sow the way of Seth, and the way of true worship into our lives, God will bless that eternally with an eternal rest and reward. Let's look at the text. I've skipped a lot of content for sake of time, but uh, just know that as we look at this final stanza of uh, Lamech's song, uh, some have called Lamech's song the song of the sword. Uh, We find that Lamech's descendants of Tubal-Cain, Lamech takes two wives and The half-brothers that are born are Jabel and Jubal, and they are a play on words. Uh, I don't have time to go into that. You can look at the footnotes in your Bible. We'll probably tell you what those mean. But the idea here is uh, metallurgy that produced high culture also produced weaponry. I mean, think of it this way. Is not nuclear science amazing? With nuclear science, we can discover the very at the very core of our genome ways to heal the causes of cancer and the causes of illness and to produce uh, uh, medicines and vaccines that will keep us from uh, the, the pervasiveness of sickness and illness. We can save hundreds, if not thousands, or hundreds of thousands, even millions of lives with nuclear medicine. But with one nuclear weapon, we could wipe out and devastate hundreds of millions of people in an instant and maim an entire generation for years to come. You see, the beauty of God's ability and creative power that he's put into us, his humans, can either be used for God's glory or for the destruction of mankind. And so we find that Lamech, in his final stanza of his song, gloried in exponential vengeance. Notice what he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. God's vengeance upon anyone killing Cain was sevenfold, meaning a perfect measure appropriate to to the crime. Listen, friends, God says, revenge is mine. I will repay. I'm I'm just going to take a momentary rabbit trail and remind you what I say often at Crossroad. If you have ever been wronged by someone and that wrong is deep and hurtful, even if it's, it was immensely painful emotionally, physically. And I don't know, I know that the depravity of man knows no bounds. And maybe there's someone who's suffered the depravity of rape or incest or verbal abuse that has driven you to depression and anxiety and despair. Friends, I'm not minimizing any of those, but I'm telling you, God is the revenger of such. And when you and I take up our arms and we decide that we must cast vengeance and we must seek restitution and we must get our revenge, we are following the way of Cain and not the way of Seth or Abel. You see, Lamech says, oh, God's vengeance is sevenfold, which means appropriate to its measure. Well, mine is going to be 77-fold, totally wrathful, completely inappropriate. So as we think about that, the descendants of Lamech would come to regard vengeance in terms of duty. Vengeance formerly become, became a part of human tradition. Today, civilization stockpiles reservoirs of exponential vengeance. And when the time is right, it unleashes it in intoxic devastation. Lamech, of course, did not hear Christ's words. And if he could have, he probably would have stopped his ears anyway. But significantly, Jesus referenced this very text. And Lamech's merciless song is a backdrop to teach Peter about the necessity of mercy and forgiveness. Do you remember when Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he's wronged me? 
seven times? And Jesus says, no, I say to you uh, seven times, but 70, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Exponential forgiveness, an avalanche of grace. Jesus presented the ideal in direct contrast with that of so-called civilization. He rained down grace and forgiveness on the toxic waste of our souls. His followers, friends, we, his followers, must do the same. Listen to Jesus' own words. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, Matthew 6, 14. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Lamech's ecstasy of anger was answered by the graced ecstasy of Christ's forgiveness. Listen to Ephesians 5.32. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, friend, if you're suffering the immense pain that somebody else has caused you, you can know the forgiveness of Christ yourself and have eternal blessings of an eternal rest. And thus you can pass that forgiveness on to someone who doesn't deserve it because their desert has nothing to do with your forgiveness. You forgive because God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, can I tell you, believer, when you walk the way of Seth, when you walk the way of God and worship by faith, trusting that vengeance is the Lord's, then sevenfold will fall upon the enemy that has assaulted you. And God's full measure of revenge will come to full fruition and eternal completion. You can trust God with that, my friend. And you can live a life of peace on this earth. And you can offer forgiveness that is unearthly. Uh, uh, it is not human. It is God and divine. And that will transcend our attitudes, will it not? Let us not be men and women whose lives are typified by anger and hate and self righteousness. Let us be God's church whose lives are typified by love for one another. Love that produces forgiveness where forgiveness is not deserved because God has forgiven us much. Oh friend, the way of, of, of Cain brings pain. The way of God brings forgiveness. We notice faith in this section. It concludes with the birth of Seth. And I close with this. And again, as in the case of Cain, God's grace became explicit. We see in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son named Seth. She says, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Seth, by the way, the name Seth means granted. God has granted restoration and God has granted a renewal of the promise through Seth. And she's thinking, my son Abel is no more, but my son Seth will carry the baton. He will be the one who will bring, God will bring the promise of victory through. And guess what? In the days of Seth's descendants, the name of the Lord was called upon again. Worship stays with the fruit of its worshipers. And when I worship God, no matter what my background, no matter what I come out from, no matter what has happened to me in the past, when I choose the way of God's worship, God will bless it exponentially. Just like that investment, you know, all of you, who told your kids, put $10,000 in an in a IRA or in some kind of compounding interest account uh, before you're 30 years old. And by the time you're 65, it'll be a million bucks, assuming we get somebody in power who understands the economy and economics. But anyway, I digress. The point is simply this. When you invest your life now for God, he exponentially increases the spiritual fruit. When you decide to be a follower of God and his way of worship, he exponentially blesses your heritage. So invest your life for God now. Follow the way of Seth. Be blessed. See his deliverance. Accept what he has granted you. Peace and prosperity for eternity. Thus, we find Eve attributing the birth of her child to the grace of God. Eve's faith also shined because another offspring is literally the word another seed. The King James, New King James translates it that way. Its reference uh, is to the promise of Genesis 3.15 and how our seed would crush the serpent's head. The gift of baby Seth ensured that the promise would stay alive in Eve. And it was indeed, she was indeed the mother of all living. Again, the birth of this third son must have been particularly sweet to the virtually sonless couple. 
even at another man, another Ish to coddle and love. And she knew that great things would happen through him. Not only do we see her faith, but we see her worship. The grace of God was not in vain in the line of Seth, because to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, Kenneth Matthews beautifully captures the significance of men beginning to call the name of the Lord. And he says this, and I quote, Cain's firstborn and successor pioneered cities and civilized arts, but Seth's firstborn and successors pioneered worship. That is exactly what Seth's children did. They worshiped. And they did more than what we call rendering, uh, what we called rendering call upon the Lord suggests, because in Moses' writing, call upon regularly means proclaimed. The idea is that people began to make proclamation about the nature of the Lord. So in the earth's earliest ages, a specialized people began to develop and they proclaimed the name of the Lord. When Canaanite civilization began to rise and worship at the shrines of abundance and art and technology, when abuse and violence and devaluation of life became commonplace, when vengeance became exponential, when men fancied that they were the captain of their souls, the Sethite civilization began to proclaim the name of the Lord, the captain of their salvation. Christians, we must understand that during the primeval history, before the Abrahamic covenant, before the law, before the Davidic covenant, God's people were known for this. They proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is a distinction of the people of God. They proclaimed the character of the Lord. They sang his praises. This is what God's people have always done through all periods of sacred history. Thus, this section of scripture concludes with a shout of grace. Our text provides us a paradigm, an outline, an understanding of civilization and culture in, in today and its ostensible rise with the increase in abundance, music and arts and technology. It rises impressively, but its rise there is a, at its rise is a demise because of sin. This is the only hope for your souls. This is the only hope for the church to call upon the name of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ. Listen to Acts 2, 4, or 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men which by we, whereby we must be saved. Today we saw from the inception of human history two worldviews diverged. Each individual human made in God's image will have to choose to follow God's way or Cain's way. There's no middle ground. One serves God and produces the fruit of lifelong worshipers who extend God's grace, love, and mercy, and the promise of an eternal redemption to a lost and dying world. The other produces the fruit of self-aggrandizing pride that leads to self-promotion at all costs and results in a world that promotes violence, self-indulgence, and the denigration of women and humanity. Cheap view of life that results in eternal damnation and separation from God. You see, friends, your choice of paths, my choice of paths will produce the fruit of followers. Who are you following today? Which way is right? Are you going to follow the way of Cain and do that which is right in your own eyes? Are you going to follow the way of Seth and find true worship at the foot of the cross? Because your redemption comes through him.